Cryotherapy for Prostate Cancer Treatment. What is cryotherapy? How does it work? For what type of patient is cryotherapy a viable medical option? Today's conversation is with Dr. James Weissach. He is a urologic oncologist at NYU, uh, to me, a world-renowned urologist in the in the field of prostate cancer with regards to both screening and treatment. And we talk about a new, brand new study, uh, hot off the press, with regards to focal cryotherapy for prostate cancer. What is the endpoint that they were looking at? What kind of cancer patients were they looking at to learn that, hey, it, it, it might be, it might be a good option for some men. So my conversation with Jim Weissach on cryotherapy for prostate cancer. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. This is our first guest who's been now with us twice and He's that good, folks. He's that he's that good. Jim Weissach. Thanks, Jim, uh, for for joining us. Um, we're gonna, Jim. The, um, I know we're gonna talk about a study that's not even published yet, and so we are here in July first, twenty twenty three. So we're gonna talk about a study that um, you and your group just recently published with regards to cryo. But take us back for a second in terms of. What, who's the right candidate? So this is a person that um, is diagnosed with prostate cancer. And you're trying to determine, are they the right candidate for cryotherapy? How do you determine that and who's the right person? Well, that's a great question, Gio. I think, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me back for another chat with you. I really enjoyed the last one. Hopefully, yeah, we'll have a, a good good chat today. And really My pleasure. Yeah. Asking. So I think... To take a step back on that, it's really important to understand where this whole push comes from, what our motivation is as urologists, and, and what our goals are with approaching prostate cancer from a novel strat treatment strategy. And we call that, or I like to call that, a partial gland ablation strategy. It's akin to doing something yeah, that is applied in many oncologic strategies throughout the body, which is to approach a tumor as a treatment to the tumor itself and not necessarily to the entire organ system. That is, an, in essence, an organ-sparing approach. And this is something we apply all through oncology as a larger field. As a really good close-to-urology example is our approach to kidney tumors. By and large, we like to apply an approach, what we call a nephron-sparing approach where possible, where we would just remove the tumor from the kidney and the image-based evaluation of the kidney. So it's a CT scan or an ultrasound or an MRI shows us a tumor. And the tumor does not encompass the entire kidney. There are plenty of parts of the kidney that look normal. Remove just the tumor. Leave the normal kidney sure. intact and allow it to. So that, that strategy, well documented and well utilized throughout the oncologic realm for many organs. Well, prostate cancer has suffered for many years from the lack of identification of the exact tumor location. And so we've always had to treat essentially 
the entire prostate when we diagnose prostate cancer. And this is led either with removal of the prostate or full radiation around the whole pelvic area, yeah. which then oh, it's a lot of uh, uh, tissue that's healthy tissue and then that can potentially lead to other problems. Correct. So whole gland treatments are great. We know how they work. We've had many years of experience with them, but they do carry some toxicity, some side effect profiles. And if we can improve upon those by limiting the treatment to just the tumor and sparing the normal prostate tissue, it provides us what we think a better balance, right? So ultimately, that's the impetus. That's the drive for our approaches of partial gland ablation, also known as focal therapy. I think that the terminology is still in its its infancy, we're going to get more and more definition around these concepts as the field evolves. But there's been a major breakthrough, uh, you know, that occurred in prostate cancer and prostate evaluation. And that was an imaging modality that actually could give us guidance as to where the tumor was located. Similar to what I described in the kidney, now we have the ability to identify where a tumor might be in the prostate define that, and then treat just that area. So that came through the uh, improvements in MRI, right? So MRI is- So you really, can only really treat what you can see. Well, that that's more, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but the reality is without that seeing, I don't think we would be able to push forward a partial gland ablation approach on prostate cancer. I wouldn't go so far at this point to just say you can't treat what you- which you can't see, but without being able to localize in some way, I don't think there's much rationale to do a partial gland ablation. And we could get into some nuances in that, but real the reality is right now, if you're a man with an MRI finding that's cancer diagnosed in that MRI finding, and that's all that's found, it is a good thought process to say, hey, that might be a good candidacy for doing just a treatment to that area. These are novel treatment approaches. They're not nearly as well understood and defined as the whole gland treatment options that I described. Sure, sure it's relatively new. Relatively new. And so what we've been doing right. and working hard on at NYU for the last 15, 10, 15 years is putting in place some foundations for this and then doing very careful evaluations of the outcomes of doing these treatment pathways. And what we just published is our three-year outcomes for men undergoing a partial gland ablation with the cryoablation technology. Tell us uh, a little bit more about cryo and how it works. So cryoablation is a technology that's not that new. It's been around for quite a while, but it's a basically a percutaneous interstitial these are words that we'll use to describe different technologies, but in essence, what it means is we put something in the prostate that then will cool the prostate down in a very controlled manner and will cool to a temperature that creates ice that will actually kill the tissue that is frozen. This is what where the cryo comes from. So we're actually making physically ice balls in the prostate through a needle, a special needle. So men are under anesthesia for this in our in our in our approach. And what we do is while the man is under anesthesia, is place these needles into the location of the tumor, freeze it, thaw it, freeze it again, thaw it, man wakes up, and the treatment's been done. Now it's very interesting because men will always ask me, Well, hey, I did 
did you remove it? Did you get, how did you get rid of the cancer? And I, I think the one way to think about this is that if you were to take your hand and put it in a bucket of water and flash freeze it, and everything was a, an ice cube and your hand was in that ice cube and your hand became the same temperature as the ice, and then we melted the ice and your hand went back to room temperature, your hand wouldn't not fall off your body right away, but slowly over time that frostbite would take effect and it would die and then it would fall off. That's what happens internally. So it doesn't really fall off, but the tissue dies and it slowly slurs down to scar tissue. So it's actually a very minimally invasive way to apply a treatment that's very effective at killing the cells. So that's cryoablation. Now patient procedure. Those cells are no longer functional. They don't produce PSA. They don't produce semen. They don't do, uh, it's just literally scar tissue around the prostate. Scar tissue in the region that we treat. Absolutely no. In the region that you treat, right. Now there goes through an inflammatory okay. process as that tissue dies, the, then the body's own inflammatory and healing processes take effect and turn that into scar tissue. Uh, but that's a process that does not occur overnight. That takes months actually. And so that process slowly evolves. And you know, what we've been studying along with this is how does it evolve? What does it look like over time as we obtain MRI sure. and, and of the prostate after treatment? Are there, what happens there, are there, um, um, obviously we'll talk about side effects in a second, but what happens to that dead tissue? Is there anything that, um, I don't know, that an inflammatory response that's probably too much of an inflammatory response, which causes a side effect from that? What are the possible side effects from that dead tissue within time, as best as you know? Well, in a very immediate post-operative, post-treatment phase, we're talking anywhere from, you know, the first week to even out to, you know, the first eight to 12 weeks, there's going to be some local inflammation that can cause some symptoms. Now, some of those symptoms are, are, are generally mild. What you can see are some sloughing, I like to describe it. If the treatment is near the urinary tract, you may see some bloody discharge from the urethra. That's the sloughing that I'm describing that do that does occur and it depends on where the treatment's applied and that it sort of drips out or leaves with the urine and you look like you have bloody urine. That's not that symptomatic, but can be alarming to see. In a more symptomatic type side effect of this treatment, you can have an inflammation that affects your urination, meaning you harder to urinate. And in some significant, you know, some rare instances that inflammation becomes significant enough that urinating is very challenging and a catheter may be needed. It's a temporary issue as that inflammatory response slowly results. Usually the urination returns to, to normal or even gets better than it was before treatment. And you also could get an inflammatory response in the testicle. This is an orchitis that's not too common, but when it occurs, it can be very uncomfortable. You get scrotal swelling from that. It usually does require some anti-inflammatories. They have to make sure there's no infection in the urinary tract. So those are all, as with any treatment in the urinary tract, considerations, things to look out for, things that we do have to manage and treat. I would say it's fairly uncommon that we have to do that. Less than 10%, certainly less than around 5% of the time that these things occur. They're limited. They improve with time, but by and large, these are these are very rare to occur to the point where they would create enough symptoms that men need to be treated. Usually, mm. that inflammatory response is localized, and there's not a lot that men notice. Mm. Jim, you know when you say focal therapy, just a term, right? Just you know, let's say for lay people, term focal therapy. The way I would interpret it is literally focal therapy. 
the tumor is there and we just hit the tumor, nothing else. This is not the case with focal therapy. This is not the case with cryo. You're typically treating at least half the gland. Is that correct? Well, it's not exactly half the gland, but what we would have to consider is whenever you see something and you know the tumor's location is there, you've confirmed that with some sort of biopsy. You have to consider that there needs to be a margin to any treatment. A margin means that you have a treatment target, but that target and the energy you're going to apply to that target needs to encompass the entire tumor, but also make sure that you have all of it around there so that there are parts that you can't see tendrils or tentacles, ways to think about this, around the tumor that need to be encompassed in the treatment. What that really means, based on our understanding of the tumors at this time, is this is still an early field and there needs to be a lot of work done on mapping tumors more accurately, is that we need to include roughly a centimeter around the tumor. That may mean, depending on how big the tumor is, that half the gland gets treated. It may. It may mean that only around a quadrant or 25% of the gland is treated. So it all right. really depends on how much cancer is there. Now, certainly, as you get into larger amounts of cancer, it becomes a bigger challenge to get that margin. And that might be a very important consideration for a man when we are discussing, should you try this type of treatment or should you use one of our standard treatments such as the removal of radiation? Because if there's more cancer than I can reliably treat with the cryoablation or some other form of energy, I don't think that's a good option. Mm. And how about location, right? So if it's really close to, let's say, the urethra, really close to the rectum, um, where now you don't have a lot of margin room uh, to, to, to freeze, then that, they, you would have to opt for a different, uh, prost uh, different uh, procedure? Yeah, you do need to always take into consideration what your energy is going to do to the surrounding normal structures. So if you were to put a lot of freezing in and it would be too dangerously close to the rectum, that, that would be a reason you couldn't do it. Uh, or urethra or bladder. What, what are the areas, what's the, what's the ideal location? If you could give us a, a kind of uh, uh, anatomy 101 of the prostate and the, the surrounding organs, and then tell us what's the ideal location. If you have it here, yep, perfect for focal. So well, there's nothing perfect, but it, it, it depends on the energy options. What I'm going to say is this, that the best, the best option for a vocal is when we know that it's very localized. So let's say it's in the posterior portion of the prostate, but it's only on one side and it's not a very large volume. That may be ideal. The other component there is how aggressive is it? And the best way to assess aggressiveness is through grade. So the Gleason grade of two or three, the Gleason grade group two or three, probably your best candidates for this because that's the intermediate level of aggressiveness. So an intermediate level of aggressiveness in one portion of the prostate that does not have extension to the other half of the prostate. Now, cryoablation probably better on the anterior half of the prostate and posterior tumors may be may be better with some of the other energies, such as HIFU. Now, what I'm talking about, though, is that each of these tumors is individual, and there is to be a little bit of scrutiny around each, each tumor as to what would be the best approach. But as a broad brush, cryoablation does really well in the anterior portion of the prostate. Now, the urethra is an interesting consideration. With cryoablation, we have a special way to protect the urethra. We put a catheter in the bladder, 
before we start that freezing process I described earlier, and it will keep the urethra warm. So the ice can go right up to that urethra and not actually freeze the urethra. It gives it a protective warming temperature, and that way you don't actually freeze the urethra, and that lowers the probability that you worry about treating the urethra. Now, that has a downside. If the tumor's right up to the urethra, I'm protecting the cancer as well with that warming catheters. That is a consideration when applying this treatment as to whether that would be a good tumor to treat with cryoablation or not. And then there's always the consideration because, hey, well, maybe we should treat through, turn off a warming catheter. We could treat all the way into there, but then you have to expect a slightly higher side effect profile on the urethra when you do that. Now, those are all nuances with each tumor and that's a very important consideration and that's why this field has so much that we still need to learn and define and, and work on because there are a lot of aspects to it like yeah there is, oh this is the perfect tumor this is the perfect place this is you know etc because it's going to be a very interesting field as it continues to evolve there again it sounds like you're highly dependent on the quality of that imaging the better the imaging are we imaging and then highly dependent upon how well we do our biopsies and understand uh, what the exact tumor volume is. So the problem with the MRI right and location, location, right and locate, yeah, yeah. So th that's our real, real big challenge is to know exactly what that margin is. I quoted a centimeter earlier, and that's what we think is a, a pretty good conservative estimate. There's probably a lot of work that we can do to either get that smaller for the appropriate tumors or where it's actually inadequate for bigger tumors. And we have to keep that in mind. Now, that's where we're doing a lot of active work. Jim, you know, to me, cryo, I, and, I, and I, you know, when I started with Aaron Katz at Columbia, who does cryo, I was like, God, this is like an alternative treatment. This is right up my alley a little bit. It's, it's using temperature. You know, that's something natural. I know there's a gas that's used, but it's something natural. This is great, right? Uh, where do I sign up if I have prostate cancer, right? It's, it's like a no-brainer. Obviously, nothing is that simple, but that's how I see it. It's still, it's still a viable treatment for many. My question is this. Isn't a tumor a tumor? So let's just say... Gleason grade three, four, even five. Based on imaging, we know that it's localized, right? We have a PSMA, and I know that um, whether insurance pays or not, but let's say we get a PSMA, it says, yep, no, nothing anywhere else, even though it's a Gleason nine. MRI shows, yep, it's encapsulated. Why not treat the Gleason nine with cryo? So you're absolutely correct, right? So when I put an ice ball into the prostate, the temperature that I can achieve with that cryoablation gets the tissue down sometimes into the negative 100 degrees Celsius. Mm. There is no tissue in our body that will survive a negative, a trip to negative 100 degrees Celsius. Nothing will survive that. As as Mark Anderton says in our courses, there's no carbon-based life form that will survive <laughs> the energies that we utilize in these focal therapy treatment profiles. So you're absolutely correct. The tumor is a tumor just like a prostate cell is a prostate cell, and they're not going to survive the energy delivery. That is not the rationale, though, that we use to say, hey, don't treat your high-grade tumors with this at this point. 
It's more that if I haven't fully treated it, where the problem is, is if I miss some tumor and I don't have all that tumor in the treatment zone, because that's right now a challenge to our understanding of the true tumor extent. A Gleason 9 tumor cell that survives, and it takes me time to figure out that there's a failure or not, is too dangerous to let go. And so we shouldn't be doing that until we have a slightly better understanding of we absolutely are getting that cell. I don't ever think that a cell of Gleason 9 or Gleason 7 would survive this, but... The problem is, is the failure, the miss. The, the issue here is that there's always a chance that our treatment, whether that ice ball or some other energy form, could have some slight miss on the tumor. It could be just a little bit off. And you have much more safety in a lower risk tumor right now as the field stands to not lose control of that disease in the amount of time that it takes to learn if you fail or not. And what I'm going to, what I think this leads into is a really important concept of our recent publication is how do we know we've succeeded in treating this cancer? And the, the way that we are using our tools to identify that is through PSA, follow-up MRI, and we've been very rigorous in requiring a biopsy of the treatment cell and a biopsy of the untreated prostate over time. And so what we just recently published are, are biopsy outcomes at three years. And what we've hold that, hold, hold that thought because I really hold that thought. We're getting there. I, I, I actually I'm I'm setting up the stage for the for the zinger. Yeah. Hold hold that thought. Um just just because for the listener Right. They, um, you know, cryo and, you know, um, one of my friends, Dr. Ralph Moss, who does a podcast on cancer, he's a huge cryo guy. He had cryo done with our colleague, Samir Tanasia. He's a huge, he, he promotes it almost like a natural therapy. So everybody's like, so I want to make sure that people know the in, ins and outs of, of cryotherapy. So I have a few more questions and then we, I, I'm so anxious to get into this study, actually. Um, there is, if a guy has, right? So if a guy has multiple cancer cells, one area is uh, Gleason grade two, the other area is Gleason grade one. Can you, would you, if let's say the patient uh, signs the dotted line or whatever, can you leave the Gleason grade one alone so that you don't have to do a full gland ablation and do a focal on the one that's Gleason grade two or three. It's an interesting area of exploration. Right now, our understanding would be that grade one prostate cancer is low risk enough that you could un leave it untreated. But if you have a Gleason grade group two or three that you have an MRI finding, and you just happen on biopsy to find outside of that tumor, unrelated to the imaging finding some grade one cancer, yes, we would consider that a candidate to be observed. The other area of cancer could be watched. And so, yes, you would have what I would call in that setting multifocal prostate cancer in more than one spot. And maybe that's not the absolute ideal scenario to do a focal therapy, but we see this a lot because prostate cancer actually turns out to be quite often multifocal. And 
therefore, you know, you might say, well, then, hey, you shouldn't do a partial gland ablation because you have a second site of cancer. Well, if that second site of cancer looks low grade and we're comfortable with a man who has multiple spots of only low grade cancer, the rationale then goes, go ahead, treat the area that looks worse and watch the low grade cancer. And we do do that routinely. I think that in our experience at NYU, we have, we've been doing that. Um, ultimately, that is still an area that we'll need more learning on over time as to what happens with those other spots of grade one cancer. Because the concept here is interesting in that, yes, it absolutely is safe to follow grade one cancer and surveillance that. But is there a difference in a man who has some grade two and then in other spots of grade one is something else going on in his biology that may mean that his grade one has a higher possibility of becoming a grade two versus someone who only has grade one. And right now our tools aren't as sophisticated as we need them to kind of give us that information. And I think we will get a lot more understanding on that over the next few years, but I think absolutely we could, but it is something that you have to keep in mind that you'd stay on a surveillance pattern. Think of it almost sure. as surveillance. With sure. And I would take it further to a, um, what I call a proactive surveillance, right? So I, these are the guys that I put on an aggressive lifestyle intervention. And, and, and typically, you know, just like I would do with anyone in active surveillance or anyone even post uh, treatment, medical treatment for prostate cancer to reduce the risk of recurrence and things like that. So I think those guys, um, those are the great, those guys are great because they're super motivated, right? Like no one really, very few people want to get up in the morning and say, I got to go exercise. No, you got to do the stuff that you don't want to do. And that's how you create a micro environment that's a hostile to cancer in a, from a lifestyle perspective, do a bunch of things. Do I want to eat broccoli at the next party? I don't. <laughs> I want to have the steak and potatoes. But right, so but you eat the broccoli because you know broccoli is actually good for prostate and prostate cancer, right? So so these guys are ultra motivated to do all the right things that are that 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 will likely reduce their risk of even recurrence or having any other cancer scenario. Last question before we go into the studies: the following. I just want to be, make sure our audience understands. Yes, full gland. A cryoablation is possible, but the side effect profile is completely different than focal. Can you talk about uh, on that and talk about that? So, yeah, absolutely. You're you're absolutely correct. the The utilization of any of these energy technologies that we're developing and exploring and, and researching to do partial gland treatments could be applied to the entire prostate. So cryoablation actually started out that way. It was a treatment that was offered as an alternative to either the removal or the radiation of the prostate, and you could freeze the whole prostate. And, you know, the, the reality is that that does have some significant impacts, primarily on the side effect profile on the sexual erectile function after these whole gland treatments. It's pretty significant, and and I have plenty of men who's if I talk to them about cryo, I think they're a good candidate for cryo, so I talk to them about it, and then they'll go do their research, and they'll come back and be like, this cryo sounds terrible. Why would you tell me about this? Because they go and they find a lot of the, the reports on older literature about whole gland cryo, and absolutely, if you put a lot of ice into the prostate and that ice extends into the areas of the neurovascular bundles, you will impact the erectile function. 
Now that erect, that impact on erectile function is probably comparable in many ways to a whole gland treatment with prostatectomy or, or even radiation, but it looks really not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about focal therapy because a partial gland ablation, depending on where that treatment goes, may not even go anywhere near the neurovascular bundles. And I'd expect in those situations to have a significant change in the impact on the erections afterwards. And we certainly have seen that and we've published that, our, our impact on our quality of life whether that's urinary function or sexual function with cryoablation is far better than when I do a removal or even the literature on radiation. And so I think that that distinction is important for men to understand, but I think when they go out and they do their own research, they're going to encounter a lot of data on whole gland cryo. So it is a good caveat that people need to be aware of that, hey, what we're talking about now is very different from what we used to do. And the side effect profile is a lot better. Now, that is not to be saying that what we're doing when we're destroying part of the prostate doesn't open some new and interesting challenges in how we counsel men on the impact of prostate treatment. And this is an area that, again, we need to do a lot more work on. But there's two components when I treat a man for prostate cancer in terms of the impact on their sexual quality of life. One is erections, absolutely. Erections are a vascular process, blood flow into the penis, and that is allows you to have an erection that you can use for intercourse. And that process does have an impact if we treat the prostate because of the nerves and the blood vessels around the prostate. If we impact those, it may weaken the erections. But there's another very important component to sexual experience that men who we preserve those erections because we're getting better at preserving those erections, but by treating the prostate, we may also impact semen production. The prostate is a reproductive organ that makes semen. So if I treat it even with a partial gland with a, uh, a cryoablation, I might dramatically reduce the amount of semen that's produced. Or the treatment with a cryo may actually scar down the mechanism by which the semen is propelled at the time of ejaculation. So a man who has an orgasm may no longer see and come out. This would be a permanent dry ejaculation. And this is a little bit tricky to predict. So I warn men that if we do this, we're very possibly going to reduce the semen volume and maybe even have no semen volume. So when you have an orgasm afterwards, it's going to be dry. And that dry orgasm could be permanent. And that may play a major role in their sexual experience, regardless of whether they get erections. And so for men who get erections after these treatments and then are dissatisfied because they're having dry orgasms, it's a new issue to navigate as the urologist. And I do need to make sure that we are counseling men appropriate to let them know that, hey, yeah, we may preserve right. your erection, but you may not be able to see the... Uh, ejaculate anymore, maybe dry, and that may be permanent. And I don't have a fix for that right now. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, I talk to some of these guys, right? And it's like, um, you know, obviously I've never had a prostate cancer treatment or prostate treatment of any kind, right? So I'm just talking just just from being a guy in that scenario, not from not as a doctor. And so some of the guys that are concerned about their ejaculate, I said, well, you're going to have an or you get an erection. It's not going to, you know, you still have your erections. You still have an or you still get an orgasm. Why do you care? Why do you care if you're ejaculating? And some guys really do. And I know aside from, you know, conception and fertilization. So I think it's very fascinating that there's 
possibly some additional pleasure from ejaculating, even though you still get an orgasm and erections and you can penetrate. So, you know, for, for many years, I was like, so what? Like, yeah. treat the cancer. I probably still say the same thing. Treat the cancer. Like, yeah, treat the cancer. You, everything else is going to be pretty good. But the sexual health and male sexuality is very fascinating to me in general. And the component of ejaculating and the pleasurable part of that versus not ejaculating is pretty interesting to me. It's, it's actually, I've had patients educate me on this to very, I think, you know, open my mind to this. And there's a urologist at Northwestern who's exploring this. But when we think about our heteronormative sexual activity and the way our, our standardized forms for assessing erectile function are all about penetrative sex. But the reality is there are many different sexual Correct. approaches out there and a lot of them don't have anything to do with penetrative sex and therefore right. when we don't ask these type of questions we don't understand and we haven't explored it we're missing out on this whole other component of the sexual experience and in many ways as urologists we need to be a little bit more cognizant of that and also do a better job trying to set expectations and also figure out ways to preserve even these other components. And I think that is an area where we need to do a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think that sexual being sexual means different things for different people. And I know many people that are, are not engaging in intercourse, but they're very sexual with their partners and still get orgasms in some cases without an erection. So I think we there's an area that we can explore a whole lot more. All right, Jim. There's a study that um, will be published soon or is published from our group, which is one of the reasons why um, I am um, I am so honored. I, I've been at NYU now for um, a long time, 13 years, 14 years. And I'm still like I pinch myself the fact that this is naturopathic functional medicine doctor practicing at NYU with all you guys who are, in my opinion, maybe biased, maybe not geniuses in what you do. You guys are the best. I will send any family member to any one of you. And I, I know how you, I know your, your skills um, um, surgically, but the research that you guys are continuously doing, following the data, following the patients and collecting the data to make sure that, you know, what, you know, figuring out what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right and being honest about it. It is just a huge privilege for me to be with you guys. And along with that, this is a study that is pub will be published on cryotherapy for prostate cancer. Talk a little bit more about that. So, you know, one of the aspects we've touched upon so far is that this is a novel treatment pathway to do partial gland ablation. How do we know it's working? How do we know it's safe? How do we know we're achieving cancer control? Because as you mentioned, the number one thing we're trying to do here is treat a prostate cancer. And we want to do that with a better side effect profile than what we think you need if the disease is limited. And so that opens the door to these partial gland treatment approaches. And so we set off on this journey with cryoablation back in 2017. And we put together a prospective registry. Okay. It's very difficult to explain what that is. So what that is, is means that men are going to get this treatment, get it as part of an evaluation with set checkpoints over time with a very rigorous follow-up. 
And the reason we chose this approach to study this is that the traditional way to study a new treatment would be through a randomized control trial. That's very, very difficult to do in the surgical world. You can imagine right. if I told you, hey, I've got a new treatment for you for prostate cancer, and it is a lower side effect profile, and it may have a lower uh, cancer control profile, but we don't know. And I'm going to, I want you to try it, but you have to do it through a randomized control trial, and we're going to flip a coin, and you either get your prostate fully removed or you get the one with the lower side effect profile. You want to do that? No one is going to. No, no. no right. No one is signing up for that. Yeah. yeah. And so, well, how do we measure the outcomes of these newer studies then when we can't do that, what we would call gold standard way to assess a new treatment? And that is by setting up a registry, a data bank, a prospective evaluation. But you have to be very rigorous about it. You've got to check the you have to define how you're going to check ahead of time, and then you have to stick with it. And that's what we've achieved. And over the last six years, we've put together a very, very well-maintained, predefined registry where men who get cryoablation get looked at every six months with PSAs, every year with them, every year with MRI. But most importantly, they get biopsied. They get biopsied in the treatment zone and they get biopsied in the rest of the prostate and this gets how done. often so we started out at six months after treatment two years with the bullet also at five years and what we've just published it's it's electronically published it'll be coming out in print form later but it's on the e uh pub state on journal of urology is our three-year outcomes and the reason it's three-year outcomes we said a two-year but by, by the time you get everyone in and get them biopsied it, it's roughly around three years and so what we've published is what it looks like at three years after a partial gland ablation for a man with an intermediate risk prostate cancer that's in one spot of the prostate no significant no grade two or higher on the other half of the prostate at three years if we biopsy what we find and this is the largest, best-maintained biopsy outcomes data set in the United States. Absolutely. And we have a hundred... How many subjects? How many subjects? Um, so the men that... Then we, we analyzed 132 men. Okay. Very good set of data, you know, of our, of our total cohort. Um, you know, well over 50% of the total cohort. So what was the average Gleason grade? What was the average PSA in these men? So the the average Gleason is probably, you know, it's grade group two, right? Gleason set. And the PSA, I, I'd have to pull up my charts here. Uh, That's all right. Yeah. But I would say it's probably around four or five, you know. Okay. What was the uh, average age? Even from the, t you don't have to be, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to it, Well, but roughly. Like 65. Okay. Okay. So if you want your data, focal right. therapy in men with roughly average Gleason grade two disease, roughly PSA of five to six, average age 65, biopsy, biopsy in six months, two years and, and five years. Yeah. And specifically what this portion of the study is analyzing, because we already published our... Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, six month data a while ago. We published our outcomes on quality of life a while ago, but this is specifically looking at our outcomes now at the two year biopsy. So really it's, it's what far primary from, outcome you're looking at cancer free. How, yeah. How often we're detecting cancer in the treatment zone and in the rest of the prostate. Okay. How often does that occur? And so this is a very important endpoint for what we're looking for, for prostate cancer management, right? How well is the partial gland ablation actually doing with getting rid of the cancer that we set out to destroy with the cryo? So that's one of the parts of this endpoint. And then how well does the treatment select men that won't develop or, or stay cancer-free at that time frame. So that's what we're really checking. You know, we want to check how many men end up with a cancer that's a new tumor in that time frame that's outside of the treatment zone and how effective has our treatment done at two years. Meaning we put energy into the tumor. Is that tumor gone at two yeah. years? How often is it, right. has it grown again? And so that's what we're assessing. All right. And the answer is? So the answer is right now that we have a 97% success rate in the treatment zone, which is outstanding. So at two years, the men that have a biopsy that's positive in the treatment site is only 3%. Amazing. The other, the other 3%, what happens? It goes from, a, it's th there's still a Gleason grade two there. Does it go to a Gleason grade five? What happens to that other 3%? Yeah, that other 3% that we detect there is just some Gleason two or three in the zone and it's a small volume. So it's probably like I alluded towards earlier, a small amount of cancer that we just missed an edge on. No one had developed metastatic disease at this point. No one lost, we lost no control over the cancer in these areas. So nothing became a particularly aggressive tumor. It's just a small amount, maybe on the edge of our treatment that potentially we didn't get a full control on in the initial, that, that's that 3%. Great. And how about in a non-treatment zone? How many people develop cancer there? So outside of the treatment zone, the other half of the prostate, we have around a 15% detection rate of new cancer, grade two. Those are, actually, grade two. those are actually pretty small, very small, yeah. not visible uh, on MRI, and they are subject to even surveillance. Some of them we could treat with a repeat treatment, whether that's with a repeat ablation or we could perform a prostatectomy or radiation. Uh, but the reality is there is going to be a detection rate outside the treatment that's somewhere in that one out of six, one out of seven men rate. That is what it looks like now at this time. Now, it's hard to predict who those men are going to be. We don't have enough of those failures right now to really be confident into identifying who would be at risk for that? And this highlights a very important concept of partial gland ablation strategies in that we have to monitor these men very carefully with yeah. the SAs and MRI and these biopsies because we need to know at the state of understanding that we have now for these strategies, how often those type of tumors will be detected. And if we detect them early enough, we have all the options to treat them that we need. Um, so that's that's really where we stand on this, and this is a pretty remarkable outcome when you really think about it. it. It is very much a validation of the concept that if we put treatment into what we think the tumor is, when we diagnose it, 
we can be pretty confident that our treatment will get rid of that tumor. That in and of itself at two years, Beautiful. 97% is a high rate of success with our, with, with our, including our, you know, evolving knowledge, you know, so I think we'll only get better. Now, yeah. the other half of this, what about that secondary tumor? How do we find the men that are at risk for that? How do we define who's going to be at risk for that? Well, that's going to be a major part of the continued work that we're trying to, to learn and understand better, but that rate's pretty low. And that's very- or, or, or Jim, was that was that was that were those tumors there on the first biopsy and just missed? They were not found, but they could have been missed. Yeah, you know, so right. they, the the biopsies didn't show them initially, but you're absolutely yeah. correct. There is an error. These are tar MRI targeted biopsies. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I mean, that's another area. I mean, we have a podcast on biopsies that we did with you. And, you know, it's an evolving science. You know, you're trying to get to 100% on everything as much as possible, which is why 97% is absolutely outstanding, right? That's like 97% cure rate in two years from cryotherapy. It's just unbelievable. And this is the first such study that, um, that, that proves that that's possible. Amazing. Well, you know, what's the strength here is that we biopsied all these men. Think about that. That's right. We, we owe a, a credit to these men because they, they subject, <laughs> I had to subject them to these biopsies. Dr. Lepore had to subject them to these biopsies. It was, I did this work yeah. with her before and, you know, we were very, very, very rigorous in saying, look, I know your PSA is low. I know your MRI is negative, but we have to do a biopsy. We need, please, you know, we need to, yeah, and <laughs> sorry. men understand how critical this is and they undergo these biopsies because as as we've discussed biopsies are no fun they are no yeah. fun and i want to do everything i can to minimize the negative impacts of the biopsies and to improve the biopsies and to limit biopsies over time but where we're at right now with partial gland ablation strategies we need that biopsy to validate what we're doing without it it, we, we're, we, we're not setting the right foundation for our approach in the U.S. Now, I think in, in England and, and you know, Europe and, and other more established cohorts of partial gland ablations, they are more image-driven and they have a little bit more experience. But right now, where we're at in the United States, this is such a critical piece to say, here's what we've done. Here's what it looks like on a biopsy. We're using the same diagnostic tool that we used to define the cancer at the beginning at the outcome and they're looking good and those results are encouraging and now it's it's irrefutable in that way there are many components that strengthen our confidence by doing that and you know it, it's it's a challenge men don't want to go undergo these biopsies when everything looks good but i, I do owe them a, a, a debt of gratitude for providing this uh step because it really gives me confidence and encouragement that we're on to something here we're onto something that's akin to the lumpectomy for prostate cancer. And you go back 40 years ago when breast cancer was going through its revolution from mastectomy to lumpectomy, and they did randomize controlled trials. We are going to have a hard time doing that in prostate cancer, but this type of data gives us some inklings into maybe this same strategy is just as valid and, you know, Maybe we could de design that randomized trial, and I would love to be part of that. But you know, mm. in lieu of that, 
let's keep doing it like this until we can get that that consensus. But these are important pieces of the building blocks. And it gives me also confidence that we're validating this, that it, men haven't, we haven't lost control of the cancer. And that that's really a critical piece, you know, because there are going to be errors in all these little steps that we take and we're not putting men at major risk. And time will tell though, and it takes a very long time with prostate cancer for us to understand what the natural history of these tumors would look like over time in these treatments. But as an initial data point, can we get rid of the tumor with an ablation when we know where it is? It looks really good that we can. And this mm. is such a better side effect profile than if I take out the whole prostate. I, you know, it's hard to argue yeah, how long are you going to follow, how long do you plan to follow that group of men? For how long? Yeah, I mean, as long as we can. So they're going into yeah. the prospective registry. What our next biopsy requirement point is five years, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so this cohort will continue to mature. These men will stay in our follow-up and we'll track their outcomes and we're looking at five years. At five years is the next point at which I want to, you know, consolidate a biopsy Point. I think if we get you to five years and we biopsied your, your ablation zone and we don't see cancer there, it's very hard for me to justify further biopsies. And then we'll use our MRIs and PSAs and only biopsy after that when we have a reason to. That's right. That's right. And then you'll keep following them beyond five years using those uh, guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, the Farmingham study of prostate cancer and cryo kind of Well, her before has a very good precedent for this with his radical prostatectomy cohort, which he followed out 20 plus years and he's followed these men ex extensively and with a lot of fidelity, right? We're looking to replicate that with this cohort because it will give us an understanding over the time frame that prostate cancer really requires. It's a 10, 15 year disease process in many instances. And so we get yep. that only through these type of mechanisms, even a randomized control trial in a two-year window doesn't address that. So this will help us get that data over time. You have to be curated and maintained, and it certainly is a big effort, and we'll continue to do that. But that's what we're aiming for. Now, this piece is so encouraging that it actually should drive, you know, and raise the the, the boats of all the focal therapy pathways. But it sets a bar. That's right. It sets a bar for all the other focal therapy pathways to say, hey, Show us what your two to three year biopsy yeah. in field recurrence rate looks like. How do you compare yeah. to the cryo data? And that's really, I think, very interesting. And I'm, I'm excited about that because I think there are many different ways, as we talked about earlier, to treat tumors in different spots. And so there's going to be different tools that we can apply. But we've got to hold them to a standard. And this sets us, sets us it does set a standard. Beautiful. Jim, final thoughts on. Just prostate cancer and cryotherapy for prostate cancer. Thanks so much for, uh, first of all, being on this morning, and and secondly to um, share this new, this amazing new finding on on cryotherapy for Gleason grade two prostate cancer. This is, I believe, is game changer. It should change how how uh, physicians and surgeons even practice those that practice cryo, cryo cryotherapy. So uh, uh, thank you so much. Um, final thoughts. Well, final thoughts are this. We are, you know, at the beginning of a, a long road to improve 
cancer treatments for men with it, with localized prostate cancer. The image guidance that MRI has given us will change everything. It's going to change. It already has changed our biopsies. It will further change our biopsies. It's already changed our screening. It will further change our screening. This is where it's going to change treatment. And this is the, one of the early, I think, pieces from our work that's going to help support that change. And I'm, I'm excited. And so I hope, you know, men can look at prostate cancer evaluation very differently now. Think about it as, you know, hey, go get checked out. There's a lot of tools and a lot of ways to avoid what we consider the big fears about this. They keep men away from their doctors. We're not trying to cause problems. We're trying to just prevent, you know, and, and do this in a way where we're minimizing the harms. And I really think that the urology field as a whole has embraced that strategy that ethos i mean we're trying to screen better we're trying to screen smarter we're trying to select men appropriately we're trying to say hey if we don't think you've got risk don't worry about it go be healthy like you said you know mm. and don't worry about this but you know you do have to check in with us and let us use the tools that we have to worry so hard to yeah. improve these things and this is just another aspect of it and i think we we're on to something and i'm i'm excited to keep working in this area yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're one of the best, man. Like I said, it's always an honor to even share share the, any stage with you or our offices with you and and the rest of the group. Um, Jim, thanks again for being on. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Happy Fourth, and um, we'll have you on a third time. You know why not? You know why not? Time. You, have, you, have, you always you always bring in the good. So thank you, man. Have a great day. <laughs> you too, Gio. Thank you so much. <laughs> Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. and It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and Five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.